Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Al Pacino's Prison Scene, the podcast where we look at movies that objectively have no deeper meaning, and we think about it. As always, I'm your host, Thomas Butler, and with me is my co-host, Jake Ferrier. I will fart in your general direction! That is, of course, one of the many, many classic quotes from one of my dad's favorite movies of all time, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. All right, I'll be honest here. I actually like Life of Brian more than I like Holy Grail. Now, that that may be a controversial opinion, but it is true. I don't know. that. I think... I'm not sure if I've seen any other Monty Python movie besides the Holy Grail. I know I have not seen Life of Brian, but I will say that one is probably more intellectual than this one because it, of course, deals with Jesus Christ. Well, it definitely is a lot more like linear. There's, there's definitely a much more clear story than in Holy Grail. Well, and one thing I would want to say about that is... Uh, you're probably aware of this, Jake, but maybe everyone listening isn't. Monty Python, before they started making movies, they had a TV show called The Flying Circus, which was this sketch show. And I think this movie very much feels like a bunch of sketches kind of stitched together. There's even some times where the story doesn't connect so much that they just threw in like a random piece of information or of animation to connect the two scenes. Yeah, like, like when it moves from, like, Sir Robin to, like, Sir Galahad or whatever. You have right. this animation that kind of um, starts telling that other story. So I, I don't know about you, Jake, but this this movie I've, I've probably seen maybe 20 times. I don't know. It's definitely in the double digits. But my dad actually told me that he watched this movie so much when he was in college that he... And his roommate could play the audio in the car and like see the movie in their head. So I'm not at that point yet, but this movie has a great deal of love in my household. I don't think I have seen this in double digits. I may have only seen this maybe five times. But I remember the first time I watched it, I was actually at, um, at Lucas's house back in high school. And I actually fell asleep during it. Nice. Yeah, and ever since then, he's held that against me. And so when I was telling him that we were doing this for the episode today, he was like, you don't, you don't deserve, you don't deserve that. Well, depending on how you have analyzed and what you think the meaning is of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you may redeem yourself today, but well, that remains to be seen. I, I don't know if I can. All right. So, uh, usually I, I kind of recap the movie, but this movie is, has so many unconnecting events that I'm going to do a brief summary of what the basic plot is and we'll get into the minutiae of what happens later. So the basic plot of the movie is King Arthur, King of the Britons obviously, uh, is traveling through Britain I guess and he's uh, initially he's like I gotta find some knights to help me do some knight stuff so he goes and he finds his knights first he finds the really smart knight I don't know his name before before we get too much into that, uh, let's let's make note that this is what was it nine thirty two A.D. Yes, that's that's so very, actually uh, before the Battle of Hastings, before historically Britain was united. Oh really? I think I think it's like I think yeah, Battle of Hastings was like a, a determining factor. You fact check me on that, but I think because you talking about Mercia, which is a which is a Britannic kingdom. And not necessarily one England. Which I guess he does say King of Britain's not England. 
Yeah, he says King of the Britons, which I, I, I don't know anything about history, so I, that number, that year didn't mean anything to me. But uh, back to the recap. So he gets all the knights, and then once they have all the knights, then God's like, yo, bro, uh, go fetch this Holy Grail for me. And they're like, okay. And then he's like, stop groveling. And they're like, okay, we won't grovel. And then the movie goes off from there, and the group splits up, and they each go on their own little adventure, you know. Uh, King Arthur and the smart guy meet the knights who say knee, and they see the seer in scene 24 or 42. I don't remember. what. Uh, and you have Sir Robin, who bravely runs away from the three-headed guy. You have Sir Galahad the Chaste, who is goes to the house with all those ladies, or castle, excuse me, with all those ladies, and they're like, you gotta have oral sex with us. And then, Gala, and then Lancelot comes in, and he's like, yo, bro, I'll save you. And the timeline there gets a little like, no, no, don't save me. I can handle it on my own. But uh, Lancelot doesn't listen and drags him out of there, kicking and screaming. And the timeline there gets a little wonky because then after that, you have Lancelot doing his own mission, saving this dude who he thought was a girl. It's a whole thing. And the bride has huge tracts of land. Kills everybody. Yeah, he kills pretty much everyone at the wedding, including the bride's father. But then after that, uh, when all the group comes back together, Galahad and Lancelot are together again. So it would make sense to me that the Lancelot thing happened before the Galahad thing, but in the movie, the Galahad thing happens before the Lancelot thing. So it kind of doesn't make any sense. But, so then after they get all together, they meet Tim the Enchanter, then they get the bunny, and then the animator has a heart attack, and then they get to the bridge and they answer the three questions, but not everybody makes it over. And then they find the castle, and they siege the castle, but they can't get in. So then they're like, hey, we got our big army, which, I will point out, Avengers Endgame has nothing on that army. Because they come out of completely nowhere. But they're there, and then they all get arrested. Because earlier in the film, a knight killed a historian. And that, I think, is very important and is something I will get into later. I have a theory about this film that it may be elsewhere online, but I came up with it on my own. So as far as I'm concerned, this theory is trademarked to Thomas Butler from Al Pacino's prison scene, the podcast. So with that said, what do you have to say about this movie, Jake? Look, I I did not take a lot of notes because I just could not. I, I couldn't. Everything it felt like I, I was stretching. Everything I wrote down felt like an insane stretch. Now I got some things down, but I, I just I don't I don't know. I have like what this the what I feel like this movie is about is just the absurdity of Hollywood, especially like you know during the thirties or the sixties. You know, like when you have like movie stars and stuff. So I think I think first off, that's what the movie's about. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that. I also did not take very many notes, mainly because I was just like, it's, it's Holy Grail. There's a lot going on. I've seen this movie several times. I don't need to take notes. But I did write down these three words. I wrote these down before I watched the movie this time because I knew it was what I wanted to get into. I didn't think about the Hollywood thing, but that is an interesting uh, perspective on the movie. So the three words that I wrote down, which I think are key themes in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, are reality, politics, and responsibility. So okay. first... So I actually, I actually got a couple things down with politics also. All so. Right. so before you say whatever you're going to say, is it from that dude who's like in the mud and stuff? And it's like, oh, you're a king, eh? Well, I didn't vote for you. Is it from that scene? There, yeah, there, there's a... Yeah, that's one of them. One of them is from that, yeah. 
Because I have uh, that is the scene. That's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, by the way, when he says, "I didn't vote for you." Which I'll say, I think the beginning of this movie is di- right up until we see God in the clouds. I think that the first part of this movie is very, very, very strong. Now the rest of the movie is funny, but I definitely think that that beginning of the film is probably its best. It's probably the best part about it, like comedically. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it opens with the coconuts. And that's like one yes, of the things that does. everyone remembers. Well, no, it even starts before that with the moose. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In the credits, and the guy, people who ran the credits were sacked, and all that stuff. Which, which that that was that was my first point about the absurdity of Hollywood was like how, and you and I know this, how difficult it is to get things done in the industry. Yeah, like scheduling, you know, getting the right people people not knowing what they're doing you know all that kind of stuff well it's interesting i know i feel like we say that a lot that it's interesting but uh you're talking about the difficulties and getting things made and as far as i know this was the first movie that my python had done after or just period but after their sketch show this was their first foray into film so you know it's disconnected nature probably comes to that but I will say the opening, there there has not been another movie I've ever seen that has credits even remotely similar to the opening credits of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's like you have the, the notes, the captions at the bottom that talk about the moose, and it's like also Wick and also also Wick. But then also in the actual credits, you have like moose trained by and all these people right, credited for doing things with the moose. Right. And there's even one point, I didn't stop the movie to read this, but I noticed this time, at some point in the credits, it says something, 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 and then it says, signed Richard M. Nixon. Yes, so, I, yeah, that was that. That was the last part before they went into the next credits. It actually talked about how in the third scene, on the left on the left side of the uh, uh, screen, there's a moose. And I looked for it, I didn't find it, but I, maybe it's just because I'm blind. No, I, I've I've tried to find it once or twice before, and I've never found it. But that's one thing uh, that the theme, theme, not thing, the theme that I think is most prevalent throughout this whole film is perception and reality. I think, all right, so I'm going to go ahead and get into my theory about the film here. I think that this movie is just a bunch of people LARPing. And, of course, LARPing stands for live-action role-play. And the foundation for that theory comes from the knight who kills the historian in the middle of the film. Because up until that point, you know, we think this is just a straightforward King Arthur narrative. But then that knight kind of breaks the fourth wall in a way because the historian's like, and then this happened and blah, 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 blah. And then the knight comes in and just like cuts his throat. And then the police, throughout the rest of the movie, the police go to places that we have seen the knights go to. And then at the end, as I mentioned in the recap, they all get arrested. And a few other things that I think could add credence to the fact that this is role play and they're not actually King Arthur is, first of all, most of the cast or all of the cast shows up in multiple roles. And yes, I know that's just because it's the Monty Python troupe. But if you were live, if you were role playing, whether it be in something like Dungeons and Dragons or just out with your friends in the real world, LARPing, then you would be using the same group of people over and over again. And that would explain why the characters or the actors reappear multiple times. But then you also have, I'm not sure if there's a single horse in this whole movie. And I don't 
don't think there is. Even 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 the Trojan horse is like a bunny. Right. And we do see things like cows and stuff that they launch out of catapults, but I don't think we ever see a horse. And of course, you know, they pretend the knights pretend like the riding a horse, but then I don't remember what they're called, but the the patsies of the group are bringing uh, coconuts together to imitate the sound of horses. So that says to me that these are not actual knights. This is not the actual king of Britain, and it's just a bunch of people having a grand old time. But what I well what I have to say about that is that's all saying that. So obviously we're watching this narrative, but initially we perceive that it is factually correct, albeit in a comedic take. But then once the police get involved, you, the, you as the audience start to realize this is not all cut and dry. And there's a few moments throughout the film that I think call back to this perception. The most Before we get into those specific points, I want to make note of kind of like, okay, so this film had a $400,000 budget. All right, it's not a huge budget, but also for 1975, that's a lot of money. And so I think we talk about perception and reality. I think that, you know, whenever there is a fight, that that can add to that. And, you know, if we take a look at the swords, and if you ever notice how flimsy they are, which is a pretty standard like LARP thing, and then whenever somebody dies, there's not an actual strike. They hit them and they fall over. Now, like I said, this budget had a this movie had a relatively low budget, but you know, and it's in a, and it is in, in comedic nature. But if we're talking about the idea and the theory that this is all just a huge LARP, then you know, especially in the scene with Lancelot when he kills everybody, he never like actually stabs somebody. He just kind of whacks him with the with his sword. And I would say the one scene that maybe contradicts that statement is the scene with the Black Knight. But even then, he just uh, hits him. Yeah, King Arthur whacks him, and then it cuts to a different angle, and the arm flies off. So it's never one continuous take of action, which, of course, yes, we know this is a movie, but in the reality of the film, there is no clean cut once, ever, I don't think. It's always like you're saying, it's just the whack, and then they fall over, or the whack, and then their body part flies off somehow. Yeah. And another thing, you talked about the film, the swords being flimsy. Obviously, these are props for a film. But if they are LARPing, then they would also be props in the reality of the film. And one thing, this is a behind-the-scenes thing that I learned a few years ago. The armor that King Arthur and all the knights wear is actually dyed wool. And it gives the appearance of being armor. Which, again, that's like a filmmaking trick. But if you were LARPing, you might not be able to afford actual armor and it does it does a good job because as many times as i've seen this movie until i read that i never i never realized that it was wool yeah which as i'm saying that i just realized there is a saying about pulling the wool over someone's eyes and that means that you fooled them so that's that's and here we go the, that's the my, deeper my meaning baby but uh, what i was going to say about the specifics of perception there's one line specifically where they're going to Camelot, and then Patsy's like, well, it's only a model. Which, again, is a joke being like, haha, we're in a movie, but if they're LARPing, they're not going to have access to real castles. So yeah. that Camelot castle in the background, or foreground, or whatever the word is, was just a model. It's not real. That's that's all I had. Oh, okay. 
Oh, he's gonna queue up. No, yeah. Um, I actually had I had made note of that too. Yeah, he says he's a model. Um, which you know, if we talk about you, you're talking about the actual thing, but I mean, even in the dialogue itself, saying that it's a model kind of it it, it grounds um, it grounds the film in reality. You know, it kind of it it is that fourth wall break that does suggest that they're LARPing. You know, it kind of pulls away from the uh, role playing. And in in his reaction, um, Arthur's reaction is is very much one of if somebody was LARPing and they were in this serious uh, role playing, that they'd be like, "You just broke character." Like, and he right. had that kind of like that anger. I'm gonna say that to Patsy. Right. So that's I think that there's there's also several lines throughout the film that I think play with perception. You have you of course have the dude that's like, "I'm not dead yet." And then they were like, no, you're dead. He's like, I'll get, I'll get better. And then you have the witch when the dude's like, she turned me into a newt. And then he says, I got better. And then, of course, you have the actual witch who the citizens of the town have dressed up to look like a witch. But then she's like, I'm not a witch. But then it turns out she was a witch because she weighed the same as a duck, which I'll talk about that in a minute. And then the last thing I'll mention about perception is Herbert who is the guy that Lancelot Love believes is a girl and he runs in to save her in air quotes, but ends up having to save him. And the whole time he was just being basically, well, the wool was being pulled over his eyes in that instance because he thought he was saving a girl. So throughout the movie, there's these things about perception and things not being actually as they seem. It maybe that was intentional. Maybe it wasn't, but it definitely calls attention to the fact that, this is not a real story. You definitely got a lot more to present than I did. I, I took a much more uh, political route. Okay. Um. So, well, I guess I guess I'll talk a little about. I, I can do talk about absurdity in Hollywood. Um, I mentioned the coconuts. I kind of mentioned like the ridiculousness of like special effects, kind of of that time, you know. Yeah. And for the first time. You know we, that we saw like good special effects was in Star Wars, and even then it was still like bad. It's like the idea of like using a coconut to represent a hoof beating, but also audio is out of sync. And that oh really? Uh, really yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. It really really highlights that kind of like um, that absurdity. Like if we look at like guns. In older movies, right. you know, there's there's no there's a very small amount of like realistic recoil in those guns. Well, I think some guns in older films were just like solid rubber, and they would input like a flash effect somehow. I could yeah. be wrong about that. I could have just made that up, but I'm pretty sure I've heard that or read that somewhere before. So I, I have another thing about perception, and then I'll move on for that. Uh, you have Galahad the Chaste, which. Of course, chastity means not having partaken in sex. And he goes to what he believes is a castle that holds the grail because of their distress signal, which is grail-shaped, as we learn from Zoot's twin sister. I don't know her name. But then he runs in there under the false pretense of finding the grail, but then he doesn't want to leave because they're seductresses. And that in itself could be an allegory for the film where we thought we were going to get, which... 
I doubt that anyone watching something with Monty Python in the title thinks it's going to be serious. But we thought that we were going to get this authentic tale of King Arthur searching for the Grail, and it just turns out to be a movie about LARPing, which, as a matter of fact, they never get the Grail. We never actually see the Grail in this film. No, we don't. So that's kind of a red herring and a slap in the face on the audience. But the other thing is you have Brave Sir Robin, and he's the only other knight that I can think of that has a subtitle to his name, and he's the most cowardly out of the bunch. It's kind of an oxymoron, and that's played for laughs, but that, again, is you know the perception hiding what the realistic truth is. Here's what I'll say. At least they're honest about the one knight who doesn't show up in this film. Yep, sir, not appearing in this film. Which also, uh, I, I don't really have something, you know, dramatic to say about this. But with the the guy that's uh, flipping through the book, you know, he gets overtaken by a gorilla. Yes. What's up, what's, what's up with that? I yeah, uh, I, I couldn't. Which, I I'll tell you. That's another like presentation of the story that we're being told. So you know, at first it looked like it was a movie. And then at some point you have the historical guy, which makes it seem like this is perhaps a documentary. Although when the night kills him, it seems to be happening concurrently with the film. But I'm getting off track here. Uh, you have the guy flipping through the book, which then presents this like, oh, we're, we're reading from a history book. Even though that has things like certain not appearing in this film. And one of the places is called scene 24 or 42. And then he gets overtaken by a gorilla. So and maybe, the film continues to go. It continues right. to. And I think later in the film, you see the gorilla flipping through the book. So obviously, he's still doing the job. But uh, I think that might, you know, go back to what you were saying about the absurdity of Hollywood, and how the guy who is in control of this film is literally an ape. And that actually could account for. Well, and I. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, and I think that 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 might be. You know, the reason why we do kind of have this uh, timeline that's out of whack is because now we are hearing or we're seeing the story uh, play out as a as an ape, you know, flips the pages of the book. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And then that would explain why things are disconnected and why things are there's like illustrations in the way maybe the uh, ape was doodling in the book instead of actually reading it. I don't know. But that could present an explanation for why this narrative is so uh, disconnected among itself. But it does not account for, you know, the police. No. So I, I think, well, that, of course, is just the warping thing. And I, I think I've talked about that enough. So now I'm going to jump into what I have to say about politics. And I'm going to read. I had the transcript of the scene with the people that are playing in the mud or poop or shit, I guess, is what that's what they call it in the film. So that's probably what it is. But uh, he, King Arthur comes up and is like, oh, I'm the king. And then this guy who's who's just written up is like, oh, king, eh? I, I, this is verbatim what he says. I'm reading from the script. Very nice. And how'd you get that? By exploiting the workers? By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma, which perpetuates the economic economic and social differences in our society if there's ever going to be any progress and then you skip forward a little bit because then he starts arguing with the king and then and then he says to the peasant woman who's also in the poop 
says, you're fooling yourself, we're living in a dictatorship, a self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes, and then he gets interrupted, and the peasant woman's like, oh, there you go, bringing class into it again. But then he keeps going, and he says, I told you, we're an anachro-syndalistic commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week, but all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting by a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs, but by a two-thirds majority in the case of more, and then King Arthur cuts him off. So I, I to the system. I have no idea what, what any of that means, really. But it is clear that these people are being oppressed, and like we discussed in Megamind, uh, there is a class divide. Because shortly after the scene, or this is actually during the scene, where the dude is like, bring out your dad. And the dude's like, I'm not dead yet. Uh, king Arthur rides through and he's like, oh, that guy's a king. And the other guy's like, well, how do you know he's a king? He says, well, he hasn't got shit all over him. So there's certainly, even though we don't see those peasant folk very much in the film, there's certainly, uh, King Arthur thinks he's above everyone else. And he doesn't abide by any of the rules any of the other characters present in this film. The first instance of that we see is with the Black Knight, who Black Knight's like, you shall not pass, and then King Arthur just hacks him to bits and then walks past. And then later in the film, you have the knights who say knee, and while he does bring them the shrubbery, he then starts basically assaulting them, which I know they were assaulting him first by saying the word it over and over, and then he traps them into saying it. The only rule that he follows is the word of God. And even God is displeased with Arthur because Arthur and his whole crew, the Knights of the Round Table, are like groveling and begging and God is like, put your groveling. So it seems that except for the Knights of the Round Table, nobody treats King Arthur with respect, even though he technically is the authority in this land. But yet the people still know that he is of a higher status than them. Do they, though? Because, like, because the peasants that you're talking about, like, they have no idea who he is. And nobody really knows who he is. The first time he goes into the castle, when they first bring up, in the beginning of the movie, um, when they talk about the African versus the European uh, swallow, you know, they don't know who he is. Uh, those peasants don't know who he is. Knights of Knee don't. Um, no, the they French. Say... They don't know who he is, but I think, well, the French, that's a whole, like, different uh, case, I think, because they're not his people. But these, the peasants and and the people in the castle can tell by the way that he is dressed, the way that he looks, that he belongs to maybe not a class, but a different sect of society that they do not belong to, I think, at least. I mean, you could disagree with me. Um, no, I mean, I agree with that, but I would also say that they, I, I don't think that they necessarily know that he's King Arthur, you know? No, no, they don't know that he's king, but they know that he is supposed to be of a higher status than them. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so going back to, um, I'm not dead yet, that guy, which is another, like I said, the, the opening of this film was so good. Um, but what I got out of that was you have the guy who's I'm not dead. You have the guy who's not dead. But then you got who then you got the guy who's collecting the dead people and the guy who's trying to get rid of them. 
Well, I think that this scene, and this can kind of go back to what we're talking about with uh, King Arthur, but this scene is definitely a representative of uh, manipulation by those who are in power. Kind of doing whatever they want to kind of get what they want. Yeah, it's 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 the oppressed, and you know, I don't. I'm not sure entirely what uh, Britain's real life government situation was at the time, but Python may have been trying to get across some commentary in this exceedingly comedic and this movie that presents itself in a way that should not be taken seriously at all. They may have been trying to kind of worm their political beliefs into the people of the time. Yeah, you, and, and you're talking about weaseling it in. Let's go to that next scene when you're talking about when you were talking about the people that were playing with the shit or whatever. Yeah. Um, so they kind of underdid it, and then they push back and they overdo it. But I think that they, when they overdo it, they do still kind of have that subtlety in overdoing it. Well, in that scene, you know, King Arthur is trying to shut the guy down the whole time. He's just like, "Be quiet! Be quiet! Be quiet!" Which could, A, be him being the head of the LARPing, being like, this is not how this scenario was supposed to go. Why are you going off script? Or B, in the reality which in which he is King Arthur, and this is a peasant that he technically rules over, he's, he's telling him to be subservient, basically, and being like, all right, look, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm of a higher class than you. And then even once they're done talking about actual politics and the autonomous society or whatever he says, King Arthur talks about how he became king because the lady of the lake gave him an Excalibur. And then the guy says, and this is again verbatim, he says, listen, strange women lying upon distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. So even King Arthur... Even his whole, like, the way he became king is absurd and doesn't make any sense and should not be legally binding at all, which I know this is supposed to be 892 B.C. or whatever you said, but his people, it's clear that this, you know, there's the classified, like I said, and there's the whatever you said, I don't remember exactly the right words about the uh, dead guy, the guy who's not dead being kind of forced to be dead even though he wasn't dead there's that resistance between you know the citizens and those who are above them yeah but and what kind of what i want to make note of so i don't really know how to like articulate this necessarily but it's kind of like not not pushing the agenda but kind of pushing you know like what can be said um kind of it's it yes i agree that you know you know king arthur there's there's this disconnect between you know the common folk and the noble nobility for sure um and so i think this this goes back and i think this goes back to um him being the king and then being like who the king like not kind of like knowing either side and then you know the two the two peasants get into this um political ideology about autocracy and like all that kind of stuff and and you know obviously you know we always say it 
it's a comedy, right? But I think there is kind of some kind of truth to you know them blabbing on about you know uh, political systems, but in reality they probably like don't know that much, and so then you know King Arthur is like shut up, shut up, you know, and what you said maybe that's LARPing or maybe that's the reality of the film, um, and maybe that was too far. But then when King Arthur grabs him. The he he uh, the peasant starts yelling, "I'm being oppressed. Violence is in the system." But at the same time, the peasant was being very uh, provocative. So there's kind of duality, this kind of push and pull between, you know, real oppression and kind of provoking the man, if you will, in order to, like, bait out that oppression. Right. No, I, I definitely think 100% this scene you with you have the people in the ship, literally, and the guy who puts himself up on a pedestal going at it. This scene is 100% absolutely commentary on the society. Not only that, the, that Monty Python were living in when they made it, but it's also the society that we are living in today in this moment. And I like that you pointed out that this is a comedy because... Through, even though we haven't done very many episodes yet, through doing this podcast, I think it's become apparent that all films, whether you see it and you're like, oh, well, that's a kid's movie. Oh, well, that's a comedy. They can't have anything to say or any message. All films, at least the good ones, but I think all films have some message and something that they are trying to get across. And through a medium like a comedy, where it may be unexpected to have a commentary on class systems and the authority of the government. I think that's the best place for it because people will be, they won't be expecting it and they might be more open to hearing it if they're not actually aware that they're being preached at. Oh, absolutely. And I think this, this is a huge thing in psychology. So you have movies um, like Get Out. Get Out is a great film, but... I think that, it, again, and Jordan Peele's a great director. Um, and it has a very strong message about um, white perception of blacks in America, in the world, whatever. But it is also pushing it in your face and pushing it down your throat. Or something like Monty Python, you have to think about it. You have to think about it. You have to take your own action into finding that meaning. And so in a lot of, and in psychology, um, especially uh, behavioral therapists and uh, psychologists that like you would go to, um, they are not going to tell you what the problem is. They're going to ask questions to try and get you to understand what the problem is. So they're not telling you, they're letting you come to the conclusion. And so when you come to the conclusion, a personal conclusion that you are much more likely to um, accept that conclusion. So in a film like Monty Python, who on its surface is just this wacko comedy about nothing, when you take the time to approach it, then you see what it's really about, and you are much more likely, like you said, to accept that. 100%. I don't, I don't have anything to add to that. That was perfectly stated. Uh, I also wrote down responsibility as a theme, and I, I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, if you have something to say about responsibility 
in Monty Python, then go for it. But I have no idea what I was going for there. Well, if we want to talk about responsibility and we want to talk about, you know, the um, governing class, then, I mean, there it is, the responsibility of the, gov- of the governing class accountability, you know, making sure that you're taking care of your people. And I think that King Arthur definitely... Well, okay, why is he looking for the Holy Grail? Because God told him to. But at okay. that point, when he's talking to the people who are in the shit, he has not had that quest yet. He's just searching for knights to follow him. So he's basically trying to feed his ego until God is like, hey, bro, uh, you're the man. Go find my grail. So okay. he very much does not care for his people at all. He just walks around. He's like, well, I'm your king. You have to do what I say. And then, of course, my one of my favorite lines is, well, I didn't vote for you. And I know I've probably said that a few times already. Yeah. But King Arthur clearly does not care for his quote-unquote citizens. Oh, absolutely not. Um, so I think if we're going to talk about responsibility, then yeah, it's a responsibility of the governing class to kind of take care of the people that they are ruling, you know, for the people, by the people. Is that is it just those two? Uh, and oh, one more. People, I don't know. Just, you, just, you know, you know, you know what we're talking about. Yeah, you can. Yeah, if, if we want to talk, yeah, that would be what we would say about responsibility in this movie is that we definitely see the lack of King Arthur and his Knights of Round Table. Um, taking that responsibility to the people that they are ruling. And so the the last theme, and I wrote this one down close to the end of the film. I'm not sure where, but I wrote down divine intervention. And I think this may be something that, like the government commentary and society commentary, was planned and was authorial intent on the part of Monty Python. Uh, you, of course, have God being like hey go get the grail but you also have the dude the monks who are like who are literally beating their heads with the bible as they walk and i don't know i would assume that it's not a bible it's like a plank are you sure i've always assumed it was a bible positive it's a plank of wood are you looking it up yeah well even even if that's a plank of wood i i've still always assumed that those are monks so why are they doing that i don't know something to do with their religion but uh, you have later in the film, you have the animator all of a sudden just dies of a heart attack, and then King Arthur and his friends run free. Oh yeah, so, dude, they're just like planks. Oh well, my whole life I thought I thought that they were Bibles. Well, hold on. No, yeah, those are just like planks or super long Bibles. Now, what did you definitely look not, up? They're definitely not regular Bibles. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch the clip. But anyways, so then you have what I what I think is God intervening in the quest to help them succeed uh, is giving the animator a heart attack. And but then at the end, they all get arrested. So maybe God was like, hey, King Arthur is not being a good king. So we need to get rid of him and hasten him on this quest to get him to the place where he would be arrested. Okay, well, all right, so I'm watching the clip, and maybe these are planks, but they have a cross painted on them. Yeah, they, okay, they are planks. But it, this is definitely a religious thing. All right, what are they saying? I'm going to look up these uh, lyrics. It's like a Gregorian chant of some sort. All right, but anyways, so I think that if maybe God... Okay, so I just looked it up. 
I, I know we're all over the place today, but that's just what we do here. Get used to it. All right, so the lyrics say, uh, Merciful Lord Jesus, grant them rest. Which I think, isn't that happening in the uh, scene with right, the dead people? The bitch. I thought. Oh, maybe you're right. I hope now. Let me watch the clip again. It's at least in between those. They're just like walking through the town. Let's see. But see. I, I think it makes more sense if it was uh, with the dead people. But anyways, it says, Merciful Lord Jesus, grant them rest. So that is obviously they're talking about uh, the afterlife and how Jesus needs to grant them rest. I don't know where I'm going with that, but that is what they are saying. So what was I talking about? Well, Divine intervention. Yes. Then you also have the French people who are always above like literally above King Arthur and all the other characters, and they kind of spit in their face. And one of my favorite lines in the film is when the French guy's like, I told him we already had one. And then at the end of the film, what you figure you learn that they actually did already have the grail. So maybe, 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 all right, so maybe it was this. Maybe God was testing Arthur, and he sent him to the French people first. And then Arthur was like, well, they don't have the grail. So they just like left, and then at the end, you figure out they actually do have the grail. Although I guess maybe we don't know they have the grail because we don't see it, but I've always assumed that they were the ones who had it in the end. But either way, Arthur never gets the grail, so he failed this quest. But maybe that was God's intention the whole time. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, because because most of the movie is them doing pointless things. That lead nowhere. Right. Um... And so I want to talk about. I want to go back to the cultists and the, the monk the guys. Yes, um, and we're going to get back into political stuff. What I wrote down for this was that this was that this is kind of like um, it, it definitely feels out of place. And you know, if we talk about like oh they were for the dead people, or we talk about oh they're for the witch. It still is very random, and the location in which it is is also very random because it doesn't look like it's in the "I'm not dead" place or um, the witch place. Um, and so, kind of what I got away from that is that it's kind of like this blind following, kind of this group identity. The loss of the individual is kind of where I uh, went with that. So the monks represent the loss of it, of the individual. Yes. How so? But that can be, it can be tied into the Knights of the Round Table, because the first person that he recruits with the with the face mask that doesn't stay up at all, um, immediately when King Arthur's like, "I'm King Arthur," he's like, "Let me follow you." Yeah. Wait. 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 Sorry. I, I'm I'm reading trivia on IMDb. What'd you say? Okay. So the monks. Cultists represent group identity. Yeah. Loss of individualism, right? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you're saying that, and I, I know, sorry, listener, if this is exactly what he just said, but I was not paying attention. Uh, you're saying that the people who follow, like King Arthur's group and the Knights of the Round Table are kind of like a cult themselves because they all just jump at the, which I guess we don't see him recruit the rest of the people, but they all jump at the chance to be a part of something greater and they just, listen to what King Arthur says and does everything he says without question. 
Yes. So they themselves have no self-identity. Right. Which what comes to bite them in the end, because don't don't two of them like fly off the bridge when the dude's like, what yes, they do. is your yeah. quest? That guy? What is your name? What is your favorite color? What is the average ring pan of a swallow? African or European? African or European? What? I don't know that. I don't even yes. know that guy's name. All right, um, this is this is not like a deeper meaning thing, but apparently, according to trivia on IMDb, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and Genesis all contributed to this movie's budget. What? That's just that's just that piqued my interest. Okay. All right. Sorry, you, you can continue. Uh. Okay, the witch burning. Um, I was also that's manipulation of the people in power because the night guy is like doing this he's he's doing this roundabout logic that kind of confuses the peasant folk yeah well because he's like it 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 does confuse them but he's also like you were saying about the therapist He's letting them or psychologists whatever you said I don't want to offend any psychologist by calling them therapists but uh, th- he's letting the people come to their own conclusions about the witch. This is true. But he is asking a very restricted question. Yeah, he is. He is leading them to the answer that he wants. Yes. Yes. He's like, he's like, I forget what he says. He's like, and what does wood do in water? It floats. All right. Well, if you want to get the whole thing. What he says is, what do you do with a witch? And they say, burn her! And then he says, and what do you burn? Wood! And what does wood do in water? It floats! What else floats in water? And then they go off the rails to like, a small rock. And they say other things, I don't remember. But then eventually someone, oh, Arthur's like, he says, a duck! Which, I guess, yeah, it really is. Because he comes in, the people can't... uh, Sorry, Jake, Jake just like burst down laughing and he got me too. All right, but uh, King Arthur comes in and basically like steals all the peasants' thunder. So he doesn't even give them a chance to respond. And so he, the authority figure, comes in and is like, I know the answer. All you stupid people get out of the way. So I definitely agree with what you're saying. Well, and, and so, and then that, and then he has the right answer. So they turn to him as a leader. They accept him as the leader because he has the answer immediately. Which exactly, and in reality, that's not that's not the right answer. Well, I mean, it is, it is. But then he goes on to say, "What is it?" He says, and and then they're like, and then the peasants are like, "So if a duck weighs as much as wood, and that means and wood floats, that means if she weighs as much as a duck, she's made out of wood, and wood floats, right? And we burn wood, <laughs> something it's like, like that." Super huh? roundabout, like way of getting it to conclusion but yeah you know he comes in he has so so we have this um follower so let's say um we have we would use trump we have trump and then we have the secretary or the speaker of the house so the speaker of the house sets something up right and kind of confuses the population kind of they give an answer that they just don't have the answer to and then and then she'll bring in our whoever the speaker of the house is they'll bring trump in who has already thought about this answer and already has an answer 
And then he has an answer that sounds good, and they're like, oh, yeah. I think I understand what you're saying. You're basically, it's, it's, it's not a mob mentality, but it's like the person in power is like, hey, this is the answer. And then everyone's just like, okay. And they don't question yeah. their authority. And it's a lot easier to have to have the answer given to you than to come up with one. You know, this actually goes back to the people in the shit and confronting the oppressors and the people who run the society. So maybe maybe Monty Python and the Holy Grail really did have more going on than uh, I would have thought. Because I, I legitimately thought, because Jake is the one that suggested we do this movie. I was like, all right, so if any movie objectively has no deeper meaning, it's got to be Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But I think maybe we did not articulate very well, but I definitely think there are things to be talked about uh, that happen in this film. Well, and there's one more I want to talk about that I think right. is very important. Is Let's go back to the historian. Um, so number one, they don't give him a name. He's just a famous historian. Right. Because because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Well, I'll say I'll say I think that's another the perception and reality thing. It's like he's just a famous historian. But yeah, go ahead. Like you're saying, it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter. But but what does matter is that he's an authority on the subject, right? He knows what he's talking about. And so we have this group who, if we want to go with this theory that they're LARPing, right? And so. What they're doing, their LARP is almost certainly historically inaccurate. But then we have this historian who is who is talking about the facts and the accuracy. And all of a sudden, one of these knights, or whatever you want to call them, comes by and kills him. Quite, therefore, quieting the educated. Shutting down factual um, representation and information. Yeah. He's, Which he's I, think is huge, I think is a huge problem within with within the society that they were living in and the society we're living in now. It uh, assuming that this guy we're we're gonna assume that he was working for King Arthur in some capacity, it would be this essentially tyrant who is like, I'm the king, even though nobody knows I'm the king and nobody I'm I'm the king because of that lady in the lake. Uh, and I, whatever I say goes. And so then he's like, hey, that guy is telling some truth or spreading some information. I don't want to be spread, so you need to go kill him. And then that night's like, aye, aye, sir. And he runs and kills him. Which, exactly. if we're, we're going to go with that they are LARPing, which I'm partial to because, of course, that is my theory. But if we're going to go with that, then the guy who is role-playing as King Arthur has gone mad with power. And wants his made-up narrative of King Arthur to be the only narrative around. So you, you have this historian who is telling the true story of King Arthur, and you have to shut him up, like you were saying, because he is spreading information that King Arthur role-play guy does not want to be out in the world. Yeah, and that's a huge problem, because as soon as, as soon as you shut down the stream of information, the people who want the information to be censored win. And that's what leads to their downfall, because he would not have been arrested had that guy not been killed. They would have gotten the grail. 
Yep. So, this movie's about greed. Yeah, think about that, guys. Greed. All right, and that's all I got. Yeah, I don't have anything else. I, I really enjoyed talking about this. I know we may have uh, gone off the rails. I don't know why I'm talking like this. We, we may have gone off the rails a little bit, but uh, we got through it. I hope that someone is still listening and everyone didn't give up. But, uh, Jake, if you would like to let the people know where they can, uh, let us know whatever they want us to know. Uh, like I said, I'm surprised that we were able to get this much out of it. Um, if you have any uh, questions, comments, ideas, if you think Thomas's idea about LARPing is stupid, you can tell us that. You can head on over to Twitter, at PacinoPod, or you can send us a Gmail or an email uh, at PacinoPodcast at gmail.com. All right. Uh, this this I think went for. I feel like if, with every episode, there may be peaks and valleys, but I feel like we're steadily getting a little better at this every time. So stick with us, and maybe one day we'll make something entertaining. Well, I, whether we're good at it or not, I think it's it's entertaining nonetheless. Maybe I'm tooting my own horn, but anyways, thank you guys for listening. Uh, come back next week. We don't know what we're gonna do yet, but uh, it'll be a good one. I promise you that. Stout sauerkraut, baby. Stout sauerkraut. How do I stop this? <laughs>